message this morning is entitled God is for us and hopefully we'll make sense of it and it'll come to light for you and think of grace as to what these guys were just telling us about in the message of song and we'll have hopefully something to say about it as we go along in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 32 as well as Romans chapter 7 14 through 20 are the two passages of scripture we're going to look at and, uh, and we'll highlight them as we go along. In football homes, Joe Namath 
is a household name. His exploits on and off the field with the New York Jets turned him the spot in the NFL Hall of Fame. And, you know, he had a Super Bowl ring on his finger. Um, and you may remember he was the underdog Jets in Super Bowl three that played the Colts. And Joe Namath had the audacity to guarantee a victory and before the championship game, and they won. And what made him kind of famous in a lot of those pictures as he was leaving the stadium, he left the stadium with his hand, his index finger pointed up to let everybody know that he silently reminding us that he had guaranteed uh, the win and he made good on it. It's unlikely that Apostle Paul was holding up a finger, a single index finger, when he finished writing the letter to the Romans, but maybe he could have, because after all, uh, we call the, the chapter 8 of Romans as known to us in the Bible as one of the great uh, messages that stand through the test of time because of the context of its, its end because of the culture they're living, and because of the words and the powerful impact of chapter 7 of Romans has to do with that of chapter 8. And so we'll look at that in just a moment. If Bible chapters had a hall of fame, rest assured, Romans chapter 8 would be in that hall of fame. Charles Stanley tells the story of a professor whom he I learned a valuable lesson. The students learned a valuable lesson uh, about grace. And he wrote this in one of his books. One of the most memorable times that he had as a seminary student uh, was from his seminary professors had a very practical way of illustrating grace to the students. Now, you got to keep in mind, these are individuals who are studying for the ministry and they're studying for all types of pastoral experience. And one of the things the professor wanted them to understand in this evangelism class is that grace has all to do with the way you present the gospel and it's grace that affects the person who hears it. And so they come into the final exam of the class and he was very clear in his instructions and said, as you get the exam, I want you to read all the way through the exam, all the way down to the end. It was even written in bold letters at the top of the exam. Please read the entire exam all the way down to the end before you begin to answer any questions. Well, the further they read, they realized very quickly as they scanned the test, all the students were so ill-prepared to answer these questions on the test. And the more they read, the more it got worse. And they realized that they were in for a difficult test. And without passing this test, you don't pass the class. So on the last page was this note. You have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given or you can sign your name at the bottom, and in doing so, you receive an A from this assignment. Well, many of them sat there stunned at the invitation of getting out of this exam. And so slowly, one by one, a few of them read the instructions and they signed their name, turned the paper in, left the class. Therefore, they got an A. 
But a few of the other students did not want to receive a gift. So they decided, I want to earn my grade. One professor, one student later said to the professor, I wanted to earn it. And as a result, they got a C plus in the class. And on and on, as he was talking to the professor later in years, he said it was amazing how many people did not, many students did not want to receive an A by doing nothing. They wanted to earn it. Romans chapter 8, the last line on the test of all of life. All who read those words of that verse, believe them, pass God's test without, you know, with flying colors. They get an A, so to speak. Some hear about God's holiness. Some of those spend an entire lifetime angry at God who desires forgiving them grace. And of course, a lot of people depend on morality and good deeds to award them and to get them good deeds in heaven. They do their best to work their way into heaven, but unfortunately, nothing less than a perfect score will do. And only by God's grace can you achieve that perfect score. Like Charles Stanley's professor, God makes an offer that seems too good to be true. But the truth is, it's the only question that this ultimately matters. Would you take the grace of God or will you reject it? Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 32 says this. When then are we to say, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Powerful verse. So grace reminds us of a few things that I want to remind you and I together today of what grace does for us. First of all, grace reminds us that God is for us. God is for us. Based on those two verses, on June 25th of 1981, Eugene Lang returned to the elementary school that he had attended 53 years earlier. Now, Lang was a successful businessman, and he went back to a neighborhood that had changed very drastically since he had left. In fact, it was East Harlem. The children were poor. Dropout rate was the highest in the entire country amongst all other schools. Now, Lang made the standard kind of like a pep talk. You know how each school now has their own little graduations and even in elementary school. So he was given the pep talk of their so-called graduation next moving up to junior high and eventually high school. And he noticed in his normal speech that it was no one was paying attention. So in the midst of his speech, he decides to change the subject. And so being, he says this, he says, dream what you want to be. The kind of life that you wish to build, dream. Believe in that dream. Be prepared to work for it. 
Always remember each dream is important because it is your dream. It is your future and it's worth working for. So he's talking to elementary students, you know, sixth graders moving to seventh grade. You must study, he continues. You must learn. You must attend junior high school. You must attend high school and you must attend college to be successful. The words were no empty words. No one really believing that these kids could make it. And yet the statistics, the history argues against this speech. But he continues, stay in school and I will. And he paused. He said, stay in school and I guarantee you that I'll give each of you a college scholarship. Multimillionaire. After a second of silence, obviously, being stunned, the emotion of cheering and applause began to happen, and especially among the parents who were there. And it started an amazing movement that has seen more than 12,000 students attend college, along with the help of many others, 200 or plus additional sponsors who've also joined in through the years. So in that first year of promise, Lang did more than guarantee the money of 61 fidgety sixth graders. He helped the school administrators prepare these kids by hiring individual tutors for each of the children so that they could do their best on the way to college. To say the least, those sixth graders and their families found out that Eugene Lang was for them. Doesn't it make a difference if you know that someone is for you? The scripture says, God is for us. Amen. Who can be against us if God is for us? God is for you. This verse says, if God is for us. Now keep in mind, the if here is not a, a, a word of doubt. It's basically saying this. If the clock goes to 12 o'clock, if it makes it there, then if I'm going to eat lunch today, I better get going. Now, that's not saying you're doubting it's going to go to lunch. You're not doubting that you're going to take lunch. You're basically saying with certainty, when that clock strikes 12, I'm out of here because my stomach is growling. And so the same statement is, this is a statement of certainty. Not that if God is for us, it's basically stating the certainty, God is for you and me. More than likely, that statement is a statement of God's love impacted with the certainty that he can penetrate whatever we're up to, whatever's in our life, and make good with what we give him. Take a moment and savor every word. God is for you. Your family may have turned their backs on you. Your child may have disappointed you. Your job may have disappeared in thin air with layoffs and cutbacks, but the maker of the mountains is for you. The one who laid the floor of the oceans is for you. The one who scattered more than 100 billion stars in 100 billion galaxies in what scientists say is more than 30 million light years with a playful toss of his hand is for you. God is for you. Not was, not will be, or might be, but he is right now. 
in the condition that you are spiritually right now, physically right now, emotionally right now, He is for you. There's no waiting. There's no probationary period. There is no small print to wade through to discover something amazing. Right now, God is for you. His availability to you is not dependent on whether or not you have been good or you have been bad. He's not some kind of Santa Claus checking his deity list, wondering if you've been naughty or nice. God is for you right now. God is for you. He's the one racing down the sideline when you're trying to reach the the end zone with the ball to score a touchdown. He's the one coming to the mound in the critical game when you're holding the pitch, getting ready to pitch to the best batter on the other team, and he's right there on the mound with you, heads back to the dugout and says, I believe in you. I know you can do it. He knows your favorite food. He knows the way you like to spend your afternoon. He knows what overwhelms you. He knows the good things of your life. Why? Because he is for you and me. God is for you. He's got your photograph on his heavenly refrigerator. He's got your birthday on his calendar. He's got a bumper sticker on that heavenly Cadillac or BMW he's riding around in, proud of the fact that you are his honor roll kid. You're the kid he's bragging on in heaven right now. Why? Because he is for you. Isaiah 49 verse 16 says, I have written your name on my hand. That's what Isaiah says. Your name, your details, your heart, God has that on his hand. Why? Because he's for you and he's for me. So understand that grace reminds us, the same grace that this gathering gang was singing about is the same grace that says God is for you. Second of all is this, God is for us despite our failures. God is for us despite your failures. The problem we have with Romans 8 And the idea that God is for us is that we're so familiar with our failures that it's hard for us to accept the fact that God can be for us in our dirtiness. And so the heart says God might be for other people, but what I've done and what the wrong I've committed, he surely can't be all in for me. I've made too many mistakes. I made too many poor choices. I really can't believe that God would be for me because God knows all about me. And that's why he's for you, because he does know all about you. He created you. He, he knew you before in your mother's womb, before you were born. He knew you in your mother's womb. He knows every hair on your head and every hair that's missing. He understands everything. His love is greater than the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. And yet God is for you. Take heart, the man who wrote the words of Romans 8 also wrote the words of Romans 7. And that's where it comes to play. And now let's go back to Romans chapter 7 and let's read how bad Paul sinned. In verse 14 of 7, of Romans 7 through verse 20, it says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am made out of flesh. Now listen to this sold into sin's power. That's what Paul says. For I do not understand what I'm doing. Hey, he's just as crazy as me. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree 
with the law that it's good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it's the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I want, do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So Paul's basically, you know, he, he defines who we are. He defines, now you won't put this in the Hall of Fame, but you do when you get to Romans 8. And it's amazing how Paul has characterized his own life. He basically says, I have no power within me to do what is right. I have no power within me to do what is just. I have no power within me to be considered righteous. I have no power within me to be even uh, invited into holiness. He says, but God is for me in chapter 8. And he says, if he is for me, then then nothing can be against me because God is for me. And God puts the power within us through his saving ability, through the blood of Christ, because he gave up his son that gave power, gave power to Paul and to every one of us to be able to live above that which we hate that we do and that of sin. For starters, he persecuted the first generation of believers. He watched Stephen be stoned to death in front of hundreds of people at a place that Many believe it's where the cross of Calvary stood. Even as Paul became a great church planner and a writer of these letters, he would soon make the New Testament that he battled with from the sinful urges of his heart. He helps make up most of that New Testament in the belief that he is forgiven and changed because of the power of God's grace. God is for you despite your failures. Do you realize the value of the wisdom of God's Word, our access to the eternal God in prayer and in worship? Despite our sin, we're still free and open to have access to God. Why is that? Because of God's powerful grace. There's nothing that you can do to turn God's head away from you. There's nothing you can say that's going to cause him to dislike you. There's nothing that you can develop in your life that's going to cease God's love for you. God knows all about the sin of the past. God knows about it in the future, and he knows about it right now. And he's still for us. Roughly 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus died for every sin that we could ever commit and he accepts us through him, through the power of the truth, and the truth has set us free if we know Jesus. He knew in advance how we would blow it. He knew in advance of what it would take to make us the Christian people that he wants us to be. And guess what? Jesus was also well aware that we wouldn't achieve perfection even after we became a believer. Paul never got it. Many of the disciples never got it. You'll never get it. I'll never get it. 
I haven't achieved it yet, Paul says, but I strive toward the goal, which is the prize, that upward calling of God that's in Philippians. He says, I'm going to achieve it one day. He's still struggling with it. He's still trying to grab it. He's still trying. Why is that? Because we're all sinners. Paul was smart without a doubt. You're smart without a doubt. Instead of listening to Satan's accusations of your own shortcomings, Paul listened once more to the message of Christ in regards to his shortcomings, and he said, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, I am not condemned because I am in Christ Jesus. Even though the sin of his life weighed heavenly upon him. I do not do the things that I want to do. I do the things that I hate. And I keep doing them because the power of sin in my life, Paul says. But I am thankful that I have power greater than the power of sin because greater is he that's within me than he that's in the world and it's the grace of God who changes me. Amen. Jesus, through Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free and sets you free from the law of the sin and death. Is it any wonder that early Christians simply referred to the New Testament as good news? Because when they got it, they realized it was good news. God is for you despite all that you've ever done. Have you ever come to face to face with your own sin? Yes, you have, and that's great that you have. But if you're in the 17th chapter of the personal letter of Romans, you're washed up. But if you move to the chapter 8, you realize you're freed because of the grace of God. Don't quit. Stay in there. God's running by your sideline. He's on your mound, and he's saying, I believe in you. Keep going. God is for you. God is for you despite your failures. Third of all, the cross is proof that God is for us. Isn't it said so quickly, God did not spare his own son. The words are too short to do it justice. It's too short to do it justice. Go to a mom and ask her this. How did you feel when you got the words your son died in war. That statement is too short to do it justice. Mull it over for a minute. Her son died in war. Only six words sum up the sacrifice of, that, of a lifetime. When she first discovered she was to be a mom, she felt nausea for weeks. She connected with the baby through, through, through this morning sickness. Soon when the nausea passed, she feels the first kick in the wound. It's common for the child to wake her up in the middle of the night with pressure on the bladder. Toward the end of the pregnancy, she sleeps hardly at all. Eventually, she has the labor pains that are excruciating, the screams of agony, the moments when she first sees sight and lays her, lays her eyes on her firstborn son. She nurses the baby. She gave up sleep for this baby. And yet she holds this baby in the fragile as an infant is. She changes the diapers. She washes up all the mess. She bounces him through the colic. She rocks him through the fevers. She cheers his first steps and wipes away his tears and the blood from his first scrape. She provides discipline where discipline is needed. She reads books so that child's mind can be stimulated. She takes him to school for the first time, cries all the way herself back home. She learns as many spelling words as a child learns. She learns and explains math. She learns and explains history and the mystery of all the girls that will chase the boys. 
She watches him grow tall. She watches him grow strong. She begins to provide socks and shoes for every step that he makes. She learns the rules of the favorite sports that he wants to play. She prepares the favorite meals of, of all, the, all the food. She reads newspapers with frightening headlines. She cries when she left, when he leaves for boot camp. And yet she provides the perfect weekend for the last Thanksgiving meal. She answers the door when the officer comes and says, your baby boy has died at the hands of enemies in a ditch and no one thought twice about pulling the trigger. Now that statement adds a lot more sense. Your son died in war. It makes a lot more sense when you begin to say that God gave up his son for you. God did not spare his only son. Paul uses only seven words to describe the heartbreak of heaven. God did not spare his son. He's for you. The cross proves that, that he's for you so much that he gave up his son so that we could have the experience of the power, the impact of God's amazing grace. In a matter of a second or two, we must slow down and realize there is no way that any of us would ever comprehend what it's like for Jesus to take off the robe of light, to leave the halls of heaven, and to make himself an organism buried in the darkness of a, of a peasant's uh, mother's wound, and yet one day would also be in the darkness of someone's borrowed tomb. That he would die a most horrible death known to man so men and women, you and I, could finally know God. He did not spare his only son. God did not spare that son. Why? Because God is for us. He's running down the sideline. He's on the mound. He's saying to us, you can do it. I believe in you. Why is that? Because I did not spare my son. I gave, made it possible so that you could live life and could live it to the fullest. The cross is the unspeakable, indescribable proof that God is for us. Fourth or all and last, forgiveness is proof that God is for us. In October of 2005, Moses Bittock celebrated the experience that he had waited for a lifetime to achieve. He had, had received his U.S. citizenship. That alone would have been enough to make this native Kenyan the happiest day for him in all his life. But on his way home from Des Moines, Iowa, he, leaving that federal building, he decided to stop off at a gas station and he saw this thing called the the hot lotto game. And so he forked out some money. And I'm not advocating you do this, but he forked out some money. And to his surprise, he won $1.89 million that day. Not only did he receive his citizenship, but he received a, a handsome reward. And he said, I guess this is what happens when you live in America. <laughs> you want to see something really amazing? As soon as a person accepts Christ, he or she is given citizenship into the kingdom of heaven, guaranteed a heavenly reward that would, be, would put any riches on earth to shame. And from verse 32, the promise is that God graciously gives all of this to us. Or perhaps he freely gives us all things. Or one translation says he will lavish upon us all that he has ever wanted to give us. It's all from one God who controls all. 
And yet, from Luke's gospel, we understand that, that there's one word that's mentioned about nine times in the New Testament, and only one word is mentioned in Hebrew in the Old Testament. And we learn it in Luke chapter 7, verse 21. Picture this. Blind people begging for a living. One gives a dollar, another gives five. One brings an extra portion of lunch so that the blind man can eat. Another one sits beside a blind man and begins to read from the book so that he can at least hear a message. And then comes the gift from Jesus. And this is the word. You'll find it, I think, 13 times in all of the Bible. And it's the word sight. I can see, screams the blind man when Jesus heals him, hugs the Jesus that he finally sees because he's been given an opportunity to live life to the fullest. Why? Because God was for him. God's forgiveness for this blind man. And yet this man stood before the Jesus that we all come to understand and know in Scripture and he's seeing him for the first time. What would be greater now, this day and time, a gift for a tank of gas <laughs> or a gift of a new vehicle, a night at a hotel for a newlywed couple or a gift of a new home paid in full. The comparison almost couldn't be made, but that's the context of the depth of what this verse is sharing with us. God doesn't just give us a tank of gas or a night out on the town or a $5 handout. He has such great things in mind so that he will overwhelm us, you and I, with his goodness. He's already given his son specifically to die for you, so why wouldn't he then forgive you of your sins? In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I'm wretched. I am so captivated by the power of my sin that I can't do anything in my life to change it. But by the time he gets to chapter 8, in verse 31, he says, What then can we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for me. And he will also grant me everything that I need in life. Powerful. Do bad things happen? Sure. But God is still for us. Even the worst of times aren't going to separate us from truth. Do you continue to sin despite what chapter 8 of Romans says? Yes. We pay different prices for the wrongs we commit, but God is for us anyway. It was during the 19th century, Ireland was stricken by a potato famine. And during this time, many of the Irish people immigrated to America. A young Irish boy stowed away on an American-bound ship. At sea, the ship struck an iceberg and began to sink. As people scrambled frantically to get off the sinking boat, the captain supervised all the activities to make sure that every last person on the ship of that sinking vessel would, be, would have a lifeboat to move away from that sinking ship and to move to safety. So everybody has been taken off the boat and the boat is now heavily sinking. A brave captain ordered all this to happen and as his lifeboat as a captain finally began to, to float away, 
the captain yelled out to a boy who stood on the brink of the deck of that boat. And so he turned his boat around, as full as it was, got out of the boat, put the boy in his spot, and said to the boy, never forget what has been given to you today. And off they went, and the captain sank with his boat. Those who have never received the gift need to take action to receive the gift immediately. Those who received the gift yet forgotten the value of it must recommit to the life that honors the gift giver. So I ask you this question. Could have asked you a long time ago, but I think it makes more sense now. Will you accept the power of God's marvelous grace? That's what it's about. I've said all that I know I need to say about grace. Now I'll just leave it in God's hands to say the rest to you and me. Will you accept the power of God's marvelous grace? Father God, we thank you that you grant to us such care, such provision, and such love, along coupled with patience and endurance and perseverance, we thank you that we have been gifted life, that we have been gifted grace, we have been gifted love, we have been gifted the second chance in life, we've been gifted life everlasting and abundance of life here on this earth. We're gifted to be citizens of your kingdom. We're gifted as ambassadors. We're gifted as priests. We're gifted as those who recognize and, and recognize your name and proclaim that name around us through action and deed as well as words. We're gifted with the presence of the power of your Holy Spirit. We're gifted with grace. Thank you, God, in your name that we pray. Amen. My friend, we want to stand and sing a song of affirmation and a song of commitment of grace greater than all our sin. As we sing that together, may it come to life and may you confirm your love, uh, your commitment uh, to the Lord God and the gift that he has given you in his grace. So let's stand together. Let's sing. Spirit.